Hello, listeners. Welcome to Educational Landscapes, Lessons from Leaders. On today's episode, we are going to learn from Matthew Reyna. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thank you, Lamu. It's happy. I'm happy to be here. Wonderful. So to get us going, what is or are your education leadership titles? So, um, and this is a little bit of a, a mouthful. Uh, I'm the Vice Chair for Education and Training in the Department of Biomedical Informatics at Emory. And I'm also a co-director of graduate studies for the Computer Science and Informatics graduate program, which includes uh, the Department of Biomedical Informatics, the Department of Biostatistics and Bioinformatics, and the Department of Computer Science. So those two roles are my fundamental leadership, educational leadership roles. Okay, wonderful. You weren't kidding about the mouthful. Yeah. What do you do in those roles? So broadly speaking, I support the education and training missions of our department and our graduate programs. Um, in particular, I try to support students, postdocs, staff, faculty, administrators, all the sort of various people um, that might interact with the education and training of a department or graduate program. And I try to support interactions and relationships between the different groups. Um, and as part of these roles, I have the pleasure of working with my department chair, Gary Clifford, other department chairs, our main director of graduate studies, Dorian Arnold, and, and many others. So it's a very collaborative role. Um, so what I mean by sort of supporting the education and training missions, um, as an example, we're a university, so we have courses. Students take courses, faculty teach courses, teaching assistants help to teach courses, but also learn how to teach through the courses. Staff and administrators support and administrators courses. So they're all sort of different groups that interact in different ways in the context of a course. And they have different incentives and perspectives and rights and responsibilities. So for example, uh, students typically wanna learn and earn the highest grades possible in a course, whereas faculty want students to learn, but they um, may want them to learn slightly different things than maybe the students wanna learn um, and, and often for good reason. And they wanna assign the most accurate grades possible, not necessarily the highest ones. So this is something that anybody who's taken a course um, or taught a course appreciates, but. Um, I think it's helpful to recognize the different incentives, the different responsibilities, the different sort of ways that people interact um, to support them. Um, for example, um, also people spend time on a course, but um, they don't necessarily want to spend too much time. So there are some like, you know, uh, aligned incentives and some that are somehow a little bit different. Um, and I also recognize that many of these relationships, for example, between teacher and student are highly asymmetric. Um, so students typically don't have the same power and perspective and of course that many faculty have. So I try to support people with these sort of differences in mind, um, knowing that they need different things. Courses are one example, research is another and, and, and a PhD program, it's really the more prominent example. Um, so that's, you know, there's a many, many ways that different parties interact within a, a program. Absolutely. Um, Practically speaking, um, so that's sort of like a high level example. Practically speaking, it's a lot of emails, a lot of meetings. Um, I chaired our PhD programs and missions committee this year, which uh, has many people interact in many different ways. I helped to expand our curriculum to um, meet our growing faculty and our growing students. Um, and I submitted, I think, a dozen courses to the graduate school last year, which I'm sure they appreciated reviewing. Um, I spent a lot of time preparing policies that explicitly describe and prescribe expectations. I wanted, I'll talk about policies, I think it, uh, hopefully a few times, because I think it policies are really the unsung, unsung heroes of uh, a lot of administrative efforts. 
Um, and that's because I think the absence of explicit policy or expectations can be kind of dangerous because of all these competing incentives and asymmetric relationships. Um, so it's important to have uh, explicit expectations for everyone, especially for, for groups that are sort of underrepresented, underserved in higher education, because I think they're the ones that are um, most effective without explicit sort of expectations that, that help everyone. Um, and I'm sort of on that note, I also work in DEI and outreach for our department and graduate program. So that's a long and meandering answer to uh, what do I do? I really appreciate that because as you talk about the number of people you've got to collaborate with and that you've highlighted the importance of policy because I, I, I agree with that. There's such an important element about transparency and typically transparency is seen through how policies are explicitly laid out and applied. So I appreciate that perspective. Yeah, I, well, let's just talk about policy for the rest of the time. I think that's a, a great, you know, there's some expression in nature of pours a vacuum. And so I think when you're not explicit, you sort of have whatever's written down, which might not be anything or might be sort of underdescribed. And you have what's sort of like done in practice or whatever is sort of done in the moment. And I think when there are asymmetric relationships, the people who suffer most from that are, for example, students. Um, so I think it's policy sounds really sort of uninspiring, but just sort of a fundamental question is what do I what do I need to do to be successful? Um, what you know, what's important for me? I think these are are very relevant questions. And I think it's it's good to sort of just say what those things are. Absolutely. So thinking about, you know, the recognition of um, the importance of policy, your DEI work, the collaboration work, what skills do you use in your roles? So good question. It helps to be patient. I think that's maybe a, a, a good response to any, uh, any question about skills. Um, when you're working with different people that have these different needs and priorities and so on, it, you can't expect for everything to happen on the the time scale you want it to happen. Um, I also think it helps to be impatient. Uh, there's too much to do and, and too much that needs to be done just to, to sort of wait for things to happen on the pace that they would sort of naturally happen. Um, so I think it, it's helpful to exercise patience and impatience as needed um, as part of like um, broader interpersonal skills. So both are, are helpful. Um, organizational, Organizational skills and time management. Uh, I think for a lot of leadership roles, you're juggling a hundred things on a good day and more on a, a a normal day, and you have to be comfortable with that and also efficient. So I I use my my calendar heavily. For example, I think before I started this position, I I used it, but uh, now it, it sort of governs what I do in a very uh, very realistic way. Um, I use. So my, and and uh, I, I use computer programming, for example, as part of my research. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit, but it's also helpful for educational leadership. So for example, during our admissions process, I frequently need to match applicants with faculty um, based on, you know, which applicants are interested in which research and which faculty have a need for students. Um, and for a variety of reasons, this is something that's difficult to do. If we have hundreds and hundreds of applicants, but not all the faculty are available to review, or there are sort of uh, maybe um, some faculty members very popular that year, uh, and others are, are sort of new and, and this and that, 
um, matching is difficult. So I, I write code um, that learns from the applications to identify the similarity between faculty and between faculty and applicants to help make these matches. Um, and the results are generally better than what I could do if I were doing it manually, especially um, given sort of the, the time demand, but it, it helps that once you've written this sort of code, you can reuse it every year um, with, with minor changes in it, and it takes maybe minutes instead of hours. Um, so uh, speaking to efficiency, having tools that help you with efficiency are important, um, especially um, you know, people make mistakes. Um, of course, people who implement computer code cause computer code to make mistakes, but um, if you can sort of embed the preferences that you're looking for, um, it's not just helpful for things like research, but but also for administration. So it, it definitely helps when I want to do things more effectively so that I can pay attention to other things that I need to pay attention to. That is so cool. Um, as somebody who during undergrad did computer programming, the patience you have to write code, I appreciate. It's it's a creative exercise. It's uh, it's, but you know, I, I do it for my research, so I'm I'm doing it anyway, and it's uh, uh, a fortunate skill that I'm I'm able to reuse. Absolutely, and I love the that use in your research, and then use for efficiency um, for the education side. So I would love to expand on that and learn a bit more about what was your journey that led to these current roles. Sure. Um, so that is a, a good transition because I, I did like math and computers. Uh, and I knew that I always wanted to do something with them, but I didn't really know what that was for some time. As you know, when we're young, we we have these sort of, uh, I, I like this, but how do I, will someone pay me to do something with this? And I know that you, as you said, had a similar beginning with a somewhat different path, but I think it's interesting that those um, slightly different paths led us back here to talk about educational leadership. Um, so I, I majored in math and languages as an undergraduate at Case Western Reserve University, which is in Cleveland, Ohio. And after that, I started graduate school in math at Georgia Tech. Um, and it wasn't the best fit for me because I was interested, I realized, in computational mathematics, but math is a very large umbrella and there are many things underneath it. Um, so I started graduate school in applied math then at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, which is in Troy, New York. Um, and I studied what I, I, I guess I would call computational mathematics for the sake of the podcast. Um, and I, I guess maybe it's helpful to give a very, very brief uh, talk about what that is. So um, it's something of an open secret that most equations are impossible or at least very difficult to solve. I think anybody who's taken a math class is not... Uh, wouldn't necessarily disagree with it, but you can actually, if you go further in math, you can actually prove that things are impossible, which is a really fun thing. Um, and however, we still want to solve them. We still want to do the impossible. So um, maybe they describe some kind of um, process that we want to study, like something in physics or biology or medicine. And maybe we need a solution to understand that process in a better way, whatever it is. Um, so often we'll settle for an approximation instead of the exact uh, uh, solution to the equation. Um, but we want the approximation to be good. So you're willing to settle for something that isn't perfect, but you want it to be at least close enough to perfect that it's useful. Um, so for my PhD, I created and implemented and analyzed these highly accurate numerical methods to solve certain kinds of differential equations, which um, describe how sort of processes evolve over time, for example. Um, and I was also a teaching assistant and I taught a course for teaching assistants. So this is sort of um, 
leads or at least as as sort of related to my path to educational leadership. Um, and while I was studying for my PhD, I became friends with a few biologists and they needed to, for part of their research, measure the area underneath certain kinds of curves. Uh, they're called chromatograms for people who know, but um, they essentially describe data that they uh, uh, observed from an experiment. And if you've taken a calculus course, you know that um, finding the area underneath a curve is a very mathematical thing to do. Um, and so here's what they, they did. Um, they started by printing out the curves on paper and then cutting them out and then weighing them on a scale. Um, and it works, but it, it takes a lot of time to do. And it's, as you would imagine, not very efficient or accurate or consistent or environmentally friendly, for example. So they don't want to do that anymore. So they started to try to fit curves to normal distribution. See, there's, these are the sort of um, bell curves uh, that you sort of see a lot of the time. Um, but um, this was faster, um, but the curves weren't sort of these sort of like normal Gaussian bell curve sort of thing. So it was actually very inaccurate. It was worse than, than cutting them out in the first place. Um, so then they took screenshots of the curves and they imported them into Photoshop and they traced them and they counted the number of pixels. And that was what they, they did. And it was a lot better, but it's still very manual process. Um, so at this point they asked if I could help because they had thousands of these curves they analyzed and it would take months to do uh, a full-time work. So I watched what they did and I implemented computer code that, that sort of modeled what they did, but improved in a few ways. And it was very, very fast and accurate and consistent and, you know, saved a lot of paper at that. Um, so this is sort of a story of how I got here, but I don't want it to be a story of, you know, biologists are bad at math or, or clinicians are bad at math because that's not the takeaway for me at all. They had a program, they knew what a good or a, a problem, they knew what a, a good solution looked like, and they knew what a bad solution looked like, which is even more important. Um, and they knew what they could do and what they couldn't do and how to frame the problem in a way that other people could help. Uh, so they really did most of the work. Um, and um, they approached me to help with just those sort of last parts. Uh, and so I think it's really a positive story uh, that helped me realize that um, biologists and clinicians and others had all these sort of interesting mathematical and computational problems that I could help solve. Um, and uh, so it, it sort of took me on the path to where I am now. So after I finished my PhD, I started a postdoc in computational biology in the Department of Computer Science at Brown and then the Department of Computer Science at Princeton. And then I moved to the Department of Biomedical Informatics and the Department of Pharmacology and Chemical Biology here at Emory. And then after a year or two, uh, shortly after the start of the pandemic, I switched from a um, more of a postdoc role to more of a faculty position and assumed my leadership role. So it's the, the sort of long story um, to how I came to where I am. I... Love that origin story, especially highlighting the importance of bringing together experts from different areas to come up with solutions, right? That's why we study our specific areas. Exactly. It's not um, It's not a story about how some people are better at computers than others. It's the law of comparative advantages. It's uh, leveraging different strengths and, and interests to sort of do more than we could do by ourselves. Absolutely. Thank you. So when you think about that journey and your um, current roles, what do you wish you knew before stepping into the two leadership roles? So that's that's a good question. Um, 
And in some sense, uh, I, I maybe I'll reframe it a little bit and wish, what do I wish that somebody had told me? Um, or, or what would I tell somebody else? Because I think in some sense, those questions are, are similar, but you know, there are things that you know that's still helpful to hear from others and, and things that maybe someone else knows that's helpful to reinforce. So what do I, um, what, what would be helpful to know or helpful to tell somebody? Um, I guess time commitment. Um, so some of these educational leadership roles will consume as much time as you're willing to, to give them. Um, and that I think speaks to the importance of the work. Um, but from a, a practical, realistic perspective, if you invest as much time as the role demands and really needs, then you're not able to do everything that you need to do um, for other things that are important for yourself or your family. And so it's a difficult balance to maintain. So I just, I, I think recognizing that um, not just time commitment, but just how much work is worth doing um, is important to, to state. Um, I, I guess I'd also sort of recognize the emotional ranges of the position. So um, you share in some ways um, some of the greatest accomplishments that, that people have in their professional lives. You are on committees, you get to say congratulations, doctor, to people, and it's really uh, uh, a rewarding thing. Um, you get to help people learn to learn. You get to do all this really rewarding stuff. Um, and there are some real highs, but there are also some real lows. Uh, students have tragedies both within and, and outside of the educational programs. They have disappointments, including ones that you unfortunately have to help to enable. Sometimes uh, not everybody who starts a graduate program finishes it. And sometimes you have to facilitate their departure from the program, for example. Um, so that is, uh, you know, both very rewarding and very difficult things. Um, I'd also mention, I guess, that a supportive and interested supervisor is paramount. So I wouldn't be doing this if my department chair wasn't as invested in education and training as uh, as I am. Uh, I might still have the role, but I wouldn't invest as much time and effort and, and interest into it as I am. So having someone who's willing to make a space for you and say, you know, I, I understand that you're here and you need to, um, you have a job and there are certain sort of things you need to do as part of your job to be successful, but this is an important part of the job and we want to make space for it and, and reward you for um, investing in it, I think is, is important. So I, I guess those three things, I don't know that I I would say that I, I didn't know them before stepping in the role, or at least I, I certainly didn't recognize them to the degree do I do now, but it's, I think, things that are worth mentioning. Um, time commitment, um, sort of the emotional range of the position, and then support. Thank you. I really appreciate that, um, especially the last two, because they are very interlinked, right? that emotional component and support and the system support for yes. the ability to do that. Yeah. So as you think about all those skills that you need to use, all these um, things you have to do, what continuing professional development do you do to keep up to date <laughs> with the needs of your roles? So I, I, you're laughing a little bit while asking it because I think you you realize it's an impossible task. Um, it's, um, there's a lot more that I would like to do and a lot more I, I should do, but it's, it's hard to, how do you support people who need support and then, uh, acquire, how do you do everything you need to do? Um, 
So I, I participate in institutional and external training. So um, for example, the training grant office at Emory held an annual training grant day earlier this month, and I participated in that. And that's a almost a full day endeavor and, and very much appreciated, but that's it's a full day. It's a lot of effort. Um, yesterday, for example, the biology department at Emory hosted a speaker um, who discussed increasing DEI in graduate education. Um, and I attended that and they talked about sort of um, in particular um, um, diversity supplements um, connected to post-bac education um, and how these things can intersect in a very interesting and positive way. And so that's, you know, great to hear how other institutions are, are doing that and um, what we can do more at Emory. So I, I wish I had more time, um, more protected time for professional development, but you, you know, you carve out things you can. So, you know, reading, um, reading things online, uh, there's a lot of stuff that you, you can do. Um, but I, you know, you sort of find opportunities where you can. Absolutely. That time management piece sneaks in everywhere. Yeah. It, it's uh, never ending. Indeed. So I know you um, talked about advice that you would give somebody if they were, um, you know, stepping into the role. Do you have any additional advice you would give someone interested in doing the same type of leadership roles that you have? Uh, yeah. Um, so I think, um, you know, there's a, um, I would say be mindful of the larger picture, um, but also not so. I, a lot of the answers come back to balance. Um, so um, being mindful of the larger picture, how do I enact policies that support a, you know, a larger program um, and are sustainable while recognizing that policies interact with students in a very individual way. And so you might institute this policy, but, uh, you know, someone, someone's experience with that policy is very much going to depend on their situation. And for them, it's, it's not, so much a policy, it's their their life, um, their graduate, uh, graduate career, it's their, their training. Um, and so the sort of being mindful of, of the larger picture of practicalities of, of a balance that you need to have between these things are, are helpful. Um, I guess there's, there's always, it's always appropriate to go back to time management also. Um, so one of the things that you, there was this program I also did uh, last summer, um, it's the faculty success program. So Emory is, is kind enough to sponsor faculty to participate in this. Um, and so I participated in, and it was a lot about a time management, about how to, to structure time, um, to be aware of how you're spending your time, um, and to be, uh, so that you can protect it, um, and, and be able to do all the things you need to do. Um, and so they talked about sort of using calendars very, um, explicitly in a, uh, um, you know, scheduling things you need to do because there are things that will creep in um, to your calendar that you're not necessarily aware of, even things like your commute. Um, sometimes people don't realize how long their commute takes or how long lunch takes or, or things like that. But um, it's easy to get to the end of the day and say, where did the time go? And not know. And um, when you have an educational leadership role, um, it's it can go to a lot of different things, to a lot of emails, to um, a lot of... Um, a lot of things that are very important, but you, you know, in that sort of parade of activities, you can lose track of what they are. So um, balance in all things, use your calendar um, and, uh, you know, schedule time for 
for things that are important for you to stay in your educational leadership role. So if you are, you know, really, if you're devoting time to educational leadership and, and um, you're not able to, for example, focus on, on research in a way that's consistent with your staying in your role, that's a problem. Um, so use your, use your calendar <laughs> widely and, and uh, uh, consistently, I guess. Thank you. I definitely appreciate that because I think I was somebody who didn't use my calendar um, as well as I now do in order to block off time. It's not sustainable. You you will get to the end of the day, the end of the month, the end of the year, and you'll, what happened? Uh, it's um, not, not that we need to be sort of uh, um, uh, dependent on our calendars. Uh, you know, overly dependent on our calendars, but it, it's it's helpful to know what we're doing with our time. Absolutely. So um, kind of building on this idea of, you know, someone interested in doing similar types of work, how do you view succession planning? So I, I view it as important, and, and I, I guess I'll return to policy um, because I think, um, it's important, um, and we were, were sort of laughing about it earlier. But I, I think it's really necessary part to um, to take institutional knowledge and preferences, and just this is how things are done, and and put them down on on paper on a, a document, something where it's accessible not only to people who are here now, but who or people who are going to be here tomorrow or, or next month or next year or so, um, for for a couple reasons. One, so they don't sort of have to uh, reinvent it, um, to make it easier to sort of acquire, um, again, for this, the sort of, a uh, uh, vacuum of expectations so that they, they don't have to, so it, it helps with equity, for example, when you say, well, we did this next or this, um, we did things in, in this way last month. Um, and so it's helpful to do the same thing next month so that people don't have sort of the sto stochasticity in their lives. Um, we, I, I sort of inherited this role from um, one of the faculty in our department, uh, Ashish Sharma, who had this role for many years. Uh, and I was going to take it over and then he he got sick, um, which was really, uh, was really awful. And then the pandemic happened. Uh, and then, you know, a lot of things happened. So it was really, uh, I would have loved to have learned from him and have learned from others. And um, my department chair was great, but it there were a lot of things happening in, in 2020 and a lot of things happening now, uh, still today. So I think having, you know, uh, having things written down and explicit, uh, and, and sort of, um, here's what we do. It doesn't mean that you have to do those things forever. You can always change policy. Um, policy, uh, should change just needed, but to sort of make things explicit and, uh, uh, clearly communicated, um, is not just helpful for, for today, it's helpful for things to come. Thank you, so important. So as you're reflecting on what you've done to date, what contributed to your biggest successes? So I, I, I think when I hear questions like this, sometimes I hear people say passion. And I think passion is, you know, great and all, but I think passion is, that's not my answer. Um, I think it's important. It's good to be passionate, important to be passionate, do things that you care about and all of that. But I, I wouldn't attribute my successes to passion because I think 
Um, that's uh, in some sense uh, um, unfair, where it sort of suggests that that if only you care enough about something, you'll be successful. And I think that's um, an unrealistic um, way to describe success. Sometimes success means good fortune. Sometimes it means um, dumb luck. Sometimes it means changing your definition of success so that you can meet your criteria for success. Um, so I, I think that's my, you know, a very honest answer is that I've been very fortunate where, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, going along and, and, and doing things and then something fortuitous happens and I sort of go in a new direction and, uh, and I end up in a, maybe a different, you know, place or a different role than I expected. And, and, uh, and it's great. Um, and, and then you find a way to say, you know what, actually, this is what I, I wanted to do. And, um, and there's your success. So, uh, I think good fortune is, is responsible for a lot of it. Work is another part. So just, um, and that's somehow different from passion where, um, you know, working hard and, um, you know, doing things is, in some sense different from passion, but it, it, it helps. Um, so, you know, trying, I think goes a long way to, uh, to success as well. Thank you. I, I appreciate that highlighting the, the hard work piece and also the being open to wherever life takes you. Cause you know, people always talk about you set up a plan and then you veer off the plan and it's like, well, maybe you were supposed to veer. So wherever yeah. you go. Or even like um not saying, oh, this is this is uh what's supposed to happen anyway, but just being open to this is happening now. Um, how um maybe it's even better than what you would have would have expected or or imagined, and and then sort of just evaluating um where you are and where you want to go and and just saying, you know, this is I'm on this path right now. Uh and and to sort of uh appreciate that absolutely live in the moment love that so what are or were your biggest growth opportunities so far um so i i maybe i'll go back to skills um and say i i would like to be more patient sometimes and also more impatient sometimes um so i i like that sort of pairing um the um because i think they're they're in, they sound like opposites but i think they're very complementary and helpful um i i'm working on efficiency i i always there's so much i want to do so much that's worth doing um and and finding ways to to get that done i think relying on other people um is helpful in finding ways for um people who are also interested in and and something to um, contribute and, um, you know, help make things that are important to success. So I, it's, I guess a lot of the, the skills that I, I talked about earlier are also my growth opportunities because I, I recognize they're important and I, um, you know, I think I'm, I'm good at some of them. Um, but, um, not obviously not perfect. And, and of course I'd like to be better at, at all of them. Um, so that's, those are growth opportunities, um, including being more and less patient. Thank you. 
So can you expand on that a little bit, um, being more patient and impatient, kind of some examples? Right. So, you know, um, right. So there's a lot of things that you want to accomplish um, or that in, in this role that I want to, to, to accomplish. I want um, policies um, that are or, or practices that are sort of related to graduate education. Um, we have a lot of different components to graduate education. You have courses, you have research, you have um, teaching. And I, I want to improve all of those things. Um, so being patient might mean I can't tackle them all at once. Um, so um, I did a lot of work on courses um, uh, a, a year or so ago. And then more recently, I did work on sort of our policies for um, satisfactory progress, um, which um, glass half empty are sort of things that if you don't do, then you... Um, uh, might on probation or are dismissed from the, the program, glass half full. Um, here's a recipe for success. And if you um, are able to to follow them or, or recognize that these things are important, then um, you have a lot better chance of, of sort of being successful in the graduate program. And so an example of patience would be saying, I, I can't do all of these things at once. There's a lot of people who are involved who have maybe different opinions and, and very valuable opinions about how these things can and should work. Um, how can I involve them in the process or make sure that they are involved, um, but also make, make progress. So saying I can't do too many things at once, um, accepting that sometimes things will fall um, off of the queue sometimes because something else happens or you know, uh, the graduate admission starts up and then that's very consuming for a couple of months and saying, okay, we have to return to this other thing a little bit later. But being impatient is then uh, saying, you know, this is important. Um, I know that other people have other priorities. I know that I have other priorities, but you have to sometimes even make like calendar events, like, you know, every, every few days to like um, respond to someone and say, do you have any updates on this? Um, sometimes they're very important for students. So something that might be not so, you know, important for, for us as administrators or as, as faculty or as, as, you know, whatever might be very important for a student. Maybe they want to go on an internship or they want, they need to, to form a committee and schedule, um, their, you know, proposal defense or something like that. And, and for us, it's like, oh, these things just we don't worry about them as much because we know that they work out. But for the student, just saying, oh, don't worry about it, it'll work out can be very unsatisfying. Um, and so being impatient sometimes means scheduling impatience and saying, I'm going to follow up with this. I know that this person who, you know, has all these other things going on in their lives, it's not a priority for them, but it's a priority for somebody else, or it's having a real uh, impact on someone else who has less power in this, this sort of, uh, um, interaction. And so I need to um, manufacture some impatience to help help them with what they need. Thank you. So powerful. Thank you. So what do you love most about your work and what you do? So I, I think it's very, it's very important. Um, it feels very important. Um, maybe um, this is touching a little bit on, on passion, which I said a, a couple answers earlier was not a, a 
I didn't want to overemphasize passion as sort of a factor in success, but I, I, I have some passion for sure. I have passion for, for what I'm doing. Um, I think um, it's important to uh, to learn how to learn, for example. Um, education has this sort of wide um, umbrella and it goes beyond um, going to a classroom and sitting for 50 minutes or an hour and 15 minutes and absorbing things in quizzes and tests. So this sort of transformation um, of, of students from um, sort of more passive learners to more active learners where they um, assume responsibility for learning how to do research, for learning how to do things, to be independent and then being able to train others, I think is very, um, very rewarding. Um, and to be able to participate in that and help facilitate it is very helpful. And I, I know I this happens at, you know, throughout the educational process, I'm sure through early childhood education, through um, primary, secondary, um, and, and um, higher education, but um, I, I think I particularly enjoy this this sort of time frame of it, where you really are helping trainees to transition from trainees into trainers, and I think that's very rewarding. Absolutely, I I definitely resonate with that <clears throat> um, as an educational developer. <laughs> it's like I I get to see them. And the next phase when they're like faculty and staff and it's like, don't you want to develop even more? And it is exciting to be. It is. Sometimes you get to work with them uh, even after. So I, I've been on um, PhD committees of, of students who are now faculty and you get to collaborate with them and um, the, their sort of progression um, from trainee to trainer is really remarkable. And you get to see them interact with their own students and um, apply some of the same lessons. Sometimes they will, um, you know, as as educators, there are things that we, there are tools that we have in our toolkit, things that we, we you know, use. I often talk about telling a story and how when you're doing research, um, a big part of research is communicating the story of that research to others. Um, and, and some, it's like, um, you know, if you chop down a tree in the forest and no one hears it, did it really happen? It's if you did research and you didn't tell anybody about it, did it, did it really happen and how communicating research, especially scientific research, which is not just equations and, you know, plots and, and things like that is in computer code, communicating that is very important. So seeing faculty um, being able to take lessons that maybe you shared with them and, and then, you know, share with their own uh, uh, trainees is very rewarding. Wonderful. I, I feel like we kind of went into a bit of this next question talking about, you know, passions around education. Is there anything we haven't um, touched into in that area? Well, I, I talked about policy, so I'm always happy to return to policy. Um, and I, I just to make that very um, explicit, I think it's really important for, for equity, um, for having equitable learning and um, outcomes and and all sorts of things for engaging uh, a, a more inclusive sort of educational process having saying here's what we need to do um this is this is a recipe for success is very helpful instead of saying well like you know it's a class you know what to do with a class right just like things will work out i i think um having <laughs> 
it, it's it's funny to say policy and passion in the same sentence, but I think really um, creating conditions that are conducive to the success of trainees, including very different trainees and ones who may um, you might anticipate might struggle more because their um, background and preparation is is you know different from maybe many of your other trainees. Creating conditions for them to be successful in an educational environment is very important. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, writing a bunch of things, just writing lists like do this and this and this and this is not, uh, um, maybe it's not the most glamorous thing to do, uh, but it it's, I think is important for, for good outcomes. Absolutely. And I do, uh, you're right. I think for a lot of people, it's like policy, passion, but it's using your passion to help guide policy. It is really important and it helps those you're working with. I agree. So last question, and I think we're gonna tap into that balance and time management thing, recognizing you are more than your work. So what are some things you do outside of work to help maintain joy in life and practice? So I, I have a family and a, a very, very active three-year-old um, and having someone who doesn't care about policy or, uh, so actually my, my child does love Zoom meetings. Uh, now it's at an age where um, um, they want to sort of jump on and, and see what's going on and and then uh, look at the sort of the Brady Bunch squares on the screen. And and um, so I was going to say that that um, they don't care about Zoom meetings, but they, they, they love them. Uh, but having someone who doesn't care about any of this is very helpful and helps to add perspective because, you know, it's it's great to be passionate and engaged and all those sort of things. But and and you know, you it can it can lead to sort of getting over invested in an email and and at, at some sense it's you know it's just an email it's just a meeting it's just um, things are what they are uh, and having someone who doesn't care about them at all and doesn't know what's going on and uh wants to to go outside and and to to build things and to do um you know has questions about trains and dinosaurs is very helpful so um having that is is very helpful um i would say that the pandemic has been difficult for many of us and very different and often unseen ways um and raising a small child during a pandemic has been very difficult i know Things are are difficult for different people, but I, I would say having a small child in, in the pandemic is definitely one of the difficult things. But it's been very rewarding to have that that time um, that the pandemic sort of forced uh, on us um, and to see the sort of an opportunity. Um, so it, it, I would say, family helps to anchor. It helps to have perspective, um, and it helps to appreciate um, the things that I am doing as part of my educational leadership roles, as part of my research roles in a, um, in a somewhat of a different way um, that wouldn't have been possible without sort of, you know, uh, having a young child who uh, has very different priorities and incentives and, and interests than, uh, than the work. Oh, little three-year-old isn't into computational biology yet. No, but, um, uh, well, so he'll, he'll, at least early in the pandemic, um, he would see us, you know, 
uh, my partner and I started doing work. And, and so he understands our jobs or typing and it, it makes the money come out. So that his his description of uh, of what we do. Um, um, and so, you know, he, he knows what the keyboard does. Um, the money, I think he's he's seen us go to an ATM once. So there's where the, the money comes out. Um, and so he somehow connected these things. Um, but no, he's he's not interested in computational biology of clinical informatics. Um, but, you know, some of the work that I do does touch on, you know, small children and and health outcomes for them. And so having a small child and saying, you know, I'm, I'm, he's happy, he's he happy, he's healthy, and, and it's important for me. And, you know, with, with any luck, he'll grow up to be a happy and healthy adult and maybe go through an educational program. And um, I hope, I hope that um, he'll have sort of the support that I, I want to offer our students. So oh, that's perspective. That is wonderful. Thank you so much. I feel like that's a beautiful way to come to the end of our core questions. Uh, but before I let you go, any last thoughts, um, reflections, any uh, lessons that you want to share with aspiring leaders? Aspiring leaders. I, I would say it's a wonderful ride. Um, it takes as much time as you're willing to give it, but the time that you are able to give it is very rewarding. Um, and I would, I guess, invite aspiring leaders to think about education as a very, uh, very inclusively. There are many components to education um, and ways to care about educations and, and to contribute to the education of our students, our trainees, our, our, our faculty, of everybody. So I would say I would I would challenge aspiring leaders to to think inclusively to to be generous with their time to the extent that they can um, and to enjoy the time they're able to spend on on what I think is very important work. Thank you once again, Matt. Very welcome. <laughs>